what works and what doesn't. Understanding what works. What works for me. Understanding your own business to know what works. What works for you. This is What Works. Tara McMullen, and this is What Works, the show that explores navigating the 21st century economy with your humanity intact. A few years ago, Sean made a new rule for me. No calling yourself lazy. It's a good rule, and a rule that was specifically directed at me and my habit of calling myself lazy. Sean never refers to himself as lazy. He values rest and sustainability far too much to label himself with such a negative term. But me? Well, before the rule, I used to refer to myself as lazy on the regular. Here's the thing. I am obviously not lazy. And here's the other thing. So what if I was? Lazy is one of those terms that has the potential to be morally neutral, but instead is understood widely as morally bad. If lazy means not working harder than you have to, why should that make me a bad person? Why should it make me less worthy of respect or care than someone who works their butt off unnecessarily? Dr. Devin Price wrote a whole book about the history of laziness, the concept as a tool of oppression, and the alienation it causes. Here he is reading an excerpt from Laziness Does Not Exist. When we say someone's lazy, we're saying they're incapable of completing a task due to some kind of weakness, but we're also claiming that their lack of ability somehow makes them morally corrupt. It's not that they're tired or even dispirited in some way we might sympathize with. The word implies that they're failures on a fundamental human level. Now, it's pretty easy to imagine a world in which lazy, not working any harder than you have to, is actually considered a virtue, a sign of high intelligence, good fortune, creativity. Actually, it's not hard to imagine at all because there was a time, not so long ago, when wealthy people believed work was beneath them. That game is not for soft hands and face workers. It's for strongs and lifters. From the Greeks to European feudal societies to what sociologist Thorsten Veblen called the leisure class, taking it easy and having the privilege to do so without repercussion was a sign that you were at the top of the economic food chain. Work was a lowly activity for lowly people. You know, women and enslaved people. Having to work to provide for yourself was considered a truly terrible fate for an aristocrat or capitalist. Now, that's changed dramatically. Today, hard work is a sign of moral virtue and considered a prerequisite for success, regardless of how much financial and social success can be attributed to starting out with many more resources than the plumber or mail carrier who also works really hard. This shift is largely attributed to the Protestant work ethic, in which working hard in service of your vocation is a way of demonstrating piety and even your position among the elect for salvation. Max Weber, a turn of the 20th century sociologist, wrote about this in his book, The Protestant Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism. 
The peculiarity of this philosophy of avarice appears to be the ideal of the honest man of recognized credit, and above all the idea of a duty of the individual towards the increase of his capital, which is assumed as an end in itself. Truly, what is here preached is not simply a means of making one's way in the world, but a peculiar ethic. The infraction of its rules is treated not as foolishness, but as forgetfulness of duty. The earning of money within the modern economic order is, so long as it is done legally, the result and the expression of virtue and proficiency in a calling. One of my favorite things to think about over the last year or so has been what makes something a moral issue. How does a particular action or state of being become a sign of superiority in the eyes of others and therefore desirable? I find myself noticing opportunities to ask these questions everywhere right now because nothing brings up the moral baggage of all sorts of decisions than New Year's. The language of New Year's resolutions is the language of moral superiority. We resolve to wake up earlier, spend less time on our devices, exercise more often, finally get started on that side hustle. We resolve to move away from action we deem at one level or another moral failings and move toward action we deem virtuous. On World Philosophy Day, philosopher Kate Mann tweeted these questions for us to consider. What is it not the case that we ought to do? What false and pseudo-obligations may haunt our mental and social lives and make us feel needlessly guilty or sinful? What are some of the things we might feel needlessly guilty or sinful about? Well, lacking discipline, renting your home, being disorganized, spending too much time on social media, being unhealthy, being in debt, not having a retirement account. Avoiding healthcare, sending your kids to daycare, preferring long walks to long runs, working too little, working too much. I could go on and on. Our culture as a whole has a wide range of rules to follow. And the smaller groups we belong to have even more rules. But most of these rules are just made up. A transference of sacred codes of conduct into the secular world. This is not to say that rules don't have their place. There should be laws against murder, fraud, and the like. But it is to say that whenever we feel an obligation to a particular course of action, a should that we feel is vital to being perceived as a functioning member of society, we can examine that impulse more closely. We can take a step back and ask whether that obligation is indeed true. Now, this topic, as I mentioned, is first and foremost in my mind right now because my feeds are awash in New Year's goal-setting advice. 10 tips for spending less time online. Five ways to incorporate exercise into your day. Seven steps to eliminating plastic from your home. 37 experts weigh in on becoming a better parent. And of course, how to make 2022 your best year yet. This time of year is practically a ping pong game of shoulds and supposed tos. And in this kind of environment, it's hard not to look around and see how you stack up against others, the way they are now, the goals they've set, and what they're trying to become. Which leaves me with the question, do your goals make you a better person? 
I don't mean do your goals help you yourself grow. Hopefully they do, although I'm dubious. I mean, do your goals make you a better person than someone else? Does setting a goal to spend less time on a device automatically lead to thinking that someone who spends more time on that device isn't as smart, disciplined, or evolved as you are? Now, on one hand, this is an easy question. No. We absolutely know our goals don't make us better than other people. But on the other hand, all of those shoulds and supposed tos cast the shadow of the ideal human. The ideal human who is all the things we aspire to and strive toward. The human that has a perfect marriage, a deep connection with their children, a successful career, a hobby they're passionate about, the discipline to run marathons and maintain their ideal weight. It's from within this shadow that many of us set our goals. We measure our own lives against the ideal other so that we can determine what we need to change to become more like them. Sebene Selassie talks about this in a section of You Belong that never fails to stop me in my tracks no matter how many times I read it. She writes, quote, By the time we are grown-ups or even adolescents, we hustle relentlessly to be better, smarter, healthier, cooler, thinner, richer, funnier, prettier, calmer, and woker. The er at the end of these words is comparison and competition. She continues... Comparison and competition are the primary fuel for separation, domination, and not belonging. Not belonging is a cumulative condition. It stems from all the tiny moments of comparing ourselves and competing with others. Failing to step closer toward that ideal state isn't just a passing defeat. It becomes a moral judgment, one that reinforces the hierarchy at the root of our own not-quite-enoughness, as well as systems of oppression. We feel less than, even guilty or sinful, as man suggested. Not much of this experience is likely to be conscious. Most of us, I hope, aren't sitting around passing moral judgment on ourselves with intention. However, in my own experience and in conversation with countless others about their own perceptions around goals, I believe that many of us do judge ourselves and others with the goals that we set. So what are we talking about when we talk about morality and moral judgment? Philosophically, we can define morality in two ways, according to the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy. Morality is either descriptively referring to an external or personal moral system, like a religion or a code of conduct, or morality is normatively referring to the logical conclusion any rational person would make about the inherent rightness of a position. Now, many of the objectives we choose as goals seem to point to the normative use of morality. Exercising more is good. Any rational person can see that. Generating more revenue is good. Any rational person can see that. Paying off debt is good. Any rational person can see that. And spending less time on your device is good. Any rational person can see that. But are those things really true? 
Is exercising, making money, spending less time on advice, paying off debt the only rational course of action for the virtuous? My answer is no. These goals aren't the result of universal logical reasoning, but instead the product of imposed moral systems. And it's these moral systems that can make it nearly impossible to know what you, a rational and feeling being, really want. Nearly impossible but not totally impossible. When we can examine the moral system behind an inclination to reach for a particular goal, we have the chance to identify the perceived or explicit rules, the shoulds and supposed tos that influence that inclination. The moral character of goal setting doesn't stop at influencing whether we see ourselves as good or bad. Goal setting is often a form of hierarchy creation. Being fit is good, being fitter is better. Making money is good, making more money is better. And this isn't merely a personal hierarchy, it's a social one. Kate Mann, who I quoted earlier, recently wrote a brave and vulnerable essay for the New York Times in which she described the immorality of diet culture. Specifically, she cited how avoiding cravings and ignoring our appetites has been celebrated. Quote, The natural human appetite for rich and sugary foods is thereby derided as not only contrary to reason, but also something to be tamed, shunned, even shamed. The constant deprivation and sometimes sheer hunger of someone who sticks to a rigorous diet is envisaged as an unambiguously good thing and as an achievement, even a virtue. Now, on the business and entrepreneurship side, I hear similar things about productivity, systems, or marketing. Business owners will tell me, this is the year I stick to my plan and work my systems, or this is the year I market like a boss, or even this is the year I outsource everything. And I know that there's a moral quality to these statements because they also tell me how bad or stupid they've been in the past for not doing these things. And while they might laugh it off at the same time, there is a painful honesty there as well. Now let's move out of the world of philosophy for a bit and enter the world of psychology. Albert Bandura was a social cognitive psychologist who passed away last summer. He's incredibly influential in his field and best known for his social learning theory and the concept of self-efficacy. I've been studying his work for my research on goal setting and motivation. Bandura describes a key component of self-motivation and self-regulation as discrepancy production. Discrepancy production is how we actively create a difference between our current condition and our desired condition. The discrepancy inspires motivation for change. At its most effective, Discrepancy production is an act of subjectivity. We decide our own desired condition and self-motivate to achieve that condition. We act on our own situation and change it to be more like our goal. However, what I find pervasive in our goal setting today is not subjectivity, but objectification. In other words, the discrepancy is produced for us for others' economic gain. Now, I mean, in some ways, this is just the essence of marketing, right? An ad is gonna highlight how things could be different, that's the discrepancy, and then tell us what's required to reach the desired outcome it's created for us, namely, buying their product. 
Now look, I am fine with marketing. But my issue is that as we're bombarded by discrepancy production in that form and continually objectified by market forces, we lose sight of what we really want and lose the ability to produce our own discrepancies without the undue influence of the market. If we aren't the subjective force behind our own discrepancy production, we're gonna find it difficult to self-motivate and self-regulate. Okay, let me say that again in English. We aren't in control of our own goal setting because the market tells us what we should want and what we're supposed to do. And that means we're gonna have a hard time getting ourselves to do the things we think we want to do in the first place. And I think that just about sums up the existential crisis of the 21st century, right? Because just wait for it. After the new year, new you headlines start to subside, we'll start to see the headlines about how to not lose our motivation or how to stick to the plans we made in January. Our sense that we lack motivation, persistence, or discipline brings us back to the moral dilemma. We hold up those who are willing to strive, deprive, and push through as paragons of virtue while bemoaning our own inability to get things done. So what are we to do? Is there a way to reclaim our desire for growth or expansion and quiet the outside influence of the marketplace and the social order it's created? Yes, I believe so. First, we need to closely examine the discrepancies we feel in our own lives. Did I create the discrepancy or was it created for me? Are the circumstances I desire based on my own will or the will of the market? Second, anytime we find ourselves comparing or ordering others, we need to examine the rule that's creating that hierarchy. Why do I believe this person's action is better than my own? Why do I think I'm better than this other group of people? Third, We can take charge of our own discrepancy production. For me, that doesn't just mean setting goals. It means creating a strong personal vision that's not so much based on material conditions as it is personal growth and my experience of life. And finally, we can create a personal ethic, our own system of morality that will influence our actions and shape our lives and stand in contrast to systems that try to impose their will on us. And that might seem like a tall order, especially given the context of a business podcast. But I don't think this needs to be difficult. It can be as simple as spending some serious time on your personal values and how those values operate in the world. How does one act in alignment with those values? How does one set goals within those values? How does one structure their life within those values? That's the essence of a personal ethic. And it's probably already something you're working on. I want to leave you with this. The existentialist philosopher Simone de Beauvoir wrote a book called The Ethics of Ambiguity, in which she lays out a guiding ethic in response to the philosophy of existentialism. It might be somewhat familiar to you already. She writes, quote, To will oneself free is also to will others free. This is not an abstract formula. It points out to each person concrete action to be achieved. In other words, to act toward my own freedom, I must act towards the freedom of others. 
When we make goal setting a moral issue, we use it to rank ourselves and others into a moral hierarchy. We deny ourselves and others freedom. In letting go of this moralizing and social ordering, we're taking a step toward greater freedom for all. And that's a moral system I can get behind. So how would your goals or commitments for this year be different if you put this ethic of freedom at their center? What outside influences could you free yourself from this year and in so doing, help others realize their own freedom? Thanks for listening. Next week, the question we're exploring is, what is the creator economy and why is it making so many people miserable? I'm sending out each What Works podcast episode in essay form right now, every Thursday in my newsletter, What Works Weekly. Plus, I include what I'm reading and listening to as I navigate the 21st century economy. To get it free of charge, go to explorewhatworks.com and sign up. What Works is produced by Yellow House Media. Our production coordinator is Lou Blazer. Our production assistant is Emily Kildoff. This episode was edited by me, Tara McMullen, and Marty Seafelt. Our executive producer is Sean McMullen.